Coming up today on the off-ramp, where did Hawaiian pizza originate? You may be surprised. And what is the real meaning behind the term white elephant gift? Answers to those and other questions coming up today on the off-ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. A chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, we're sheltering in place like you are as the coronavirus hits. And first of all, I guess we want to say if anybody has someone who's suffering from that, our prayers are with you. And we want to try to make things as light and fun as possible as we're all working together. You and I are working together. Yes, we are. Every waking hour. <laughs> yes, and the virus can't get over quick enough here. What? <laughs> get back to the real show. I thought we were kind of having fun. We are. Bob. Okay. We are. Okay, before we get started, I have a couple of facts I thought you might find interesting about the volume of traffic and stuff on the internet as a result of all this? Give it to me. How many downloads of Zoom, the video conferencing app, do you think in one given day that might be happening? In any given day? Well, this is from uh, the second week, actually the uh, first week of March, but it was on a Wednesday, and the uh, Wall Street Journal had a statistic here. Zoom is a video conferencing app. I know. We we, downloaded it. We use it 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 for family talks. For the kids, yeah. It's great fun. So All how, right. Uh, I don't know. Five million. No, not that many, amazingly. No. <laughs> I think it's not It's not as ubiquitous as you might seem. 275,000 downloads, though, of video conferencing app Zoom on Wednesday. On Wednesday yeah. this week. Now, here's another one. This is interesting. Of the top 100 Amazon bestsellers. Books? Yeah. What's 74% of those? Oh, I'll bet you they're catastrophe books. You'd think that. But No. No. Romance? No. Wait, wait, don't tell me. Okay, okay, I <laughs> well, won't tell you. Well, that's another show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's... Um, this makes sense because you think of families being at home. Yeah. Uh, oh, I don't know, self-help books? I have no idea. Children's books. Oh, 74 of, of the top 100 Amazon bestsellers on a certain date last week were children's books, or they were either books for children or books on how to educate children. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll bet you there's a boom on that. That's pretty cool, isn't I, it? I love that, yeah. And there was a 300% increase in sales of a card game called Virus in recent weeks. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, doesn't uh-huh. it? And I guess uh, YouTube, for all kinds of things, is getting people to watch, because that's almost like a television library. Oh, sure, you know? sure. Go, go watch kitty cats and dogs. <laughs> so so you got a question to start us off today? Sure, yeah. You know, Bob, how... Uh, Every Christmas, my book club uh, and I, we exchange white elephant gifts. It's oh, yeah. one yeah. of the things. Uh, we have some of those in our garage. Oh, we have a lot of them. <laughs> and, we get, and I get all my white elephant gifts, you know, from your relatives' Christmas presents. What? <laughs> no, they give you good relatives. They're listening. I'm sorry. but That sounds mean. It does. But I'm sure you're wondering where that term where came from. Where that term from. came from. Right. Where well, did it come from, Marshall? Well, I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> Oh, she's opening a huge reference book. Okay. (laughs) Okay. For a large part of the world, white elephants have always been signs of power and portent. Really? Yeah. They were prized by monarchs, and uh, Buddha's mother dreamt of one before giving birth to him. But they were also a mixed blessing, because if it was a gift from a king, 
mm-hmm. gave you a white elephant, it would be dishonorable to reject it. Oh, you have to keep it. Well, yeah, a white elephant, but what the heck? You know how much it costs to keep an elephant? A lot of money. And it, it was horribly expensive to keep for anybody except the king. Ah. So white elephant has become our term for useless extravagance. It was everybody feared getting a white elephant from the king. So this is from India? Is that where this comes from? Yes. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's Japan. Hmm. Well, how far uh, back does this go? uh, Well, this is between 1650 and 1700. It's older than me. It is older than you. (laughs) What's your source there? It's interesting. The book is A History of the World in 100 Objects. And uh, along with this story, there's a picture of two white elephants uh, beautifully carved and decorated. That is interesting. So so it was like an extravagant gift, useless gift, and it cost you money. It cost tons of money. The last thing you wanted from the local king was, oh, he's thanking me? Oh, no, no, it's a white elephant. (laughs) I had no idea. That is a fascinating thing. That's a great thing. I've got this question I told you about, and it sounded stupid when I asked it. (laughs) No. uh, Where did Hawaiian pizza originate? You would think. You would think. uh, Hawaii, right? Oh, okay. I was going to say South Dakota, but yeah, possibly. Yeah, but that's but not no, true. That's no. not. So okay. where? Um, and it's not South Dakota. It's oh, okay. Sorry. Polynesia. No. Okay. You think it would? It's Canada. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I I wouldn't. Have, that'd have been a last uh, guess. Yeah, it was invented by a North American who lived in Canada. Hawaiian pizza, which of course is tomato sauce, pineapple, bacon, or ham. It's been controversial since it was introduced, you know, to to some Hawaiian pizza tastes great, to others it's a sacrilege, you know, taking uh, taste buds from uh, pizza's Italian origins. But Mental Floss says Hawaiian pizza is like doodling on the Mona Lisa. I don't feel that way. (laughs) But the story is that... um, I love it, actually, with barbecue sauce. I think it's great. Uh, Chatham, Ontario, Canada, and it originated, gee, it was a Canadian-Greek immigrant, Sam Papopoulos. Uh, who owned the Satellite Restaurant. That was the name of it. He just returned from Detroit where he had tasted pizza for the first time. And back, uh, oh God, in the old days, pizza was considered an ethnic food. It wasn't widely available in Canada. So he bought a small oven and he began preparing with traditional ingredients. But in 1962, he added pineapple just for the fun of it to see how it would taste. And the sweetness and the salty ham added new flavor. And, and he call, uh, did he name it Hawaiian pizza? Yeah, apparently oh. he called it Hawaiian because that was the name of the brand of canned pineapple he used. Yeah. Hawaiian pineapple. Cool. Yeah. Well, I have a pizza question back at you. Okay. Since we don't confer on these things, sometimes we overlap. But this is probably even more interesting than yours, Bob. Oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you want to guess uh, what the earliest origins are for the modern pizza? Now, pizza goes back to like Roman times. I mean, a long, long time. It does. Ago. But it I thought does. it was uh, World War II veterans brought it to America from Italy, I thought, from the, World uh, War II. I see. Well, there's some overlap there. Yeah, my my sources tell me. Okay. They, they called me this morning. Okay. <laughs> but I can't reveal them. That more than, you know, 2,000 years ago, the Roman soldiers, so you were right there, they take uh, matzah, Jewish matzah, and put olive oil and cheese on the top, Mm. you know, to eat uh, where they were out slaying dragons or whatever (laughs) the Roman soldiers did. (laughs) And uh, they didn't come to the United States until the Great Depression years because it was cheap and it was easy. 
And uh, today, a little factoid, we have over 61,000 pizzerias in the United States. That's from, you know, the 1930s. 61,000. And those pizzerias sell over 3 billion pies a year. Uh, and we contribute to that number, Bob. Yes, we do. <laughs> Considerably. That's one of the uh, carry-out foods we have uh, tried. <laughs> yes, and love. What was that, the end of the first or second week? It's like, let's, they're let's selling pizza. pizza. Let's get a pizza. <laughs> you know, you, you venture out from your home, it felt dangerous to go to the pizzeria to pick up the pizza, but we did. And it was kind of oh, crazy. It was kind of fun. <laughs> You know, as this is a time of disease, obviously, and everybody's looking for cures and treatments. Can you tell me the answer to this question, Marcia? All right. How did Coca-Cola lead to the wonder drug that saved millions from infection? Well, I bet I know this one. Okay, what is the drug? Co- cocaine. No. No? No. Then I don't know. You have to listen to the full question here. <laughs> it has nothing to do with cocaine. How did Coca-Cola lead to the wonder drug that saved millions from infection? So what would that be? That would be an antibiotic. Yes. There's antibiotics in Coca-Cola? No. Oh. Okay, it's penicillin. How did Coca-Cola lead to penicillin? I don't know. Okay, well, here's the answer. Okay. Okay. And it's not the story of Coca-Cola. It's the story of a Coca-Cola supplier. And the reason I'm telling this story is like, this is a time of invention. We're seeing all kinds of people coming up with new ways to treat things or to make masks or whatever. This happened uh, in wartime, in World War II. Now, um, Pfizer, the name of the company Pfizer, we know today is a big pharmaceutical company. But back in the 30s, it was a company that made vitamins and using a deep tank process, they made the citric acid used in Coca-Cola. Okay. So they made tons or gallons, hundreds of gallons of citric acid in these tanks. Well, in 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt pulled all these people in and said, we got to find a way to make penicillin on a large scale. Because 1928, penicillin was invented by or discovered by um, Alexander Fleming. Alexander Fleming. He invented penicillin, and it worked, but it was in very small, you know, growing these bacterial molds, it was like in a laboratory. And even in in 1939, a British policeman had a serious infection. He recovered in just 24 hours with penicillin. Great, right? But he died a few weeks later because the supply ran out. In fact, I didn't know this, but in 1942, half the U.S. stock of penicillin was used to treat a single patient's blood poisoning. So it was nowhere near ubiquitous like we think of today. So FDR called all these titans of industry and and people from universities and said, come up with a way to make penicillin on a large scale. Well, Pfizer, John McKean of Pfizer and Jasper Kane, they decided, why don't we grow penicillin mold in our big deep tanks that we use to make these gallons of citric acid for Coca-Cola? So in four months, they transformed an ice factory to a commercial grade manufacturing. And less than two years later, on June 6, 1944, every Allied soldier who landed on Normandy and D-Day had a penicillin injection kit. That's how fast they ramped up. And most of those kits came from Pfizer. And now they're a $50 billion company. But it was that kind of invention that we're looking for today to try to treat the coronavirus COVID-19. That's amazing. About the uh, soldiers, particularly having um, FDR did that? Yeah. Made sure everyone was inoculated? Well, they had it. So that if they got infected while they're fighting, that would take care of an infection right away. Yeah, wow. What do you got? What is the only food we eat that doesn't spoil? Now, this is a food that actually you eat more than I do. It never, ever spoils. 
It doesn't ever spoil. No. It's cornflakes. <laughs> no? Golden Grahams? No, no. no. <laughs> Graham crackers. Ah, uh, no. Okay. But this is something that uh, you consume more Ra- than I do. Raisins. No. Well, that's a good guess. I, I prefer raisins in the form of wine, but yes, that is a... Raisins in the form of wine? Well, aren't they grapes? See, they're reduced grapes, are raisins. Yeah, I never so, thought of raisins and wine, but okay. Well, I didn't either until just this moment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, let me give you another hint. Okay. It's something you use with your tea. Oh, honey. Yeah. Honey never goes bad. Nope. Wow, that's interesting. Isn't it? It, it sure coagulates a yeah, lot. Yeah, sometimes it gets that crusty kind yeah, of thing in the box. Yeah. So you should just heat that up and use it because it's not yeah, bad. Never but, throw honey away. Right. So is this also a romantic thing to say, never throw your honey away? <laughs> I think so. I like it. I like, I like that it. too. That's a good one. Yeah, it is. All right. You know, Bob, that the Lake Superior is the biggest, the deepest, and the coldest of all the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. But the question is, how big is it? If you drained it out into the continental United States, how deep would the water be? I'll give you three choices. Well, okay. Six inches. This Mm -hmm. is over all of the United States. Six inches, one foot, five feet. Oh, my goodness. Well, it can't be. I'll say six. I was thinking like three inches because that's a lot. That's a lot of water all over the 48 or 50 states. It can't be 50 because how do you get the water to Hawaii? <laughs> well, right. Hawaii is surrounded by water. <laughs> That's right. No, if you, it would, well, you're wrong. Oh. And seldom you are, my dear, but it's five feet. Oh, my God. You mean if you took and dumped Lake Superior's water all over the continental United States, it would be Five feet deep? Yeah, that is hard to believe. That's isn't it? amazing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty deep. That makes lake. you realize it's really a, an inland sea. Yeah, that's amazing. That is amazing. We should take a break and then come back in just a moment. You're listening to The Off Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Hi. We're back, and I got a question here. Uh, it's food oriented, okay? okay? Yeah, we're into food today. Okay. I like it. After doing his research into the meatpacking industry for the jungle, how did Upton Sinclair change his eating habits? Oh, I think I'll bet. I read that book. It was one of my favorites. I would guess he'd become a vegetarian real quick. That, that's exactly right. Yeah, I couldn't even read, eat a hot dog after I read that book. Yeah, yeah. like many of his readers. But uh, I've recovered. Well, yeah. he won the uh, Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he became a vegetarian. He ate a diet of only rice and fruit for many years. <laughs> it really it killed him. It affected him. Oh, you never want to tour a meatpacking plant. That's the old uh, adage. Yeah, I did it's that. Just, uh, yeah. Okay, let's talk about um, hit records, okay? Sure. Just hit records over the past 100 years. There have been more than 100 years of recorded music. In terms of numbers of members, what is the largest group ever to have a hit record? The largest group ever to have a hit record. Not the Jackson 5. Like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir That's or exactly what really? the answer is. I yeah. got it, Donna. Yeah. Yay, Marsha. <laughs> and this was in 1959. The group hit the charts with their version of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and there were 375 members who sang on that record. Uh, really? Yeah. I know this is in the... Don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Marines. What is the song they sang? They Battle s- Hymn? Yeah, the Battle Hymn. I seen the group. Yeah, you you were on the right track. But let's get to your question instead oh. of singing. Well, okay. that's... Uh, I got that one right. <laughs> yeah, All right. Yeah, very I'm good. Okay. overconfident now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Here's one I'm pretty sure, Bob, you don't know, that the average marathon running distance is 26.2 miles. Yeah. You didn't know that, did you? Yes, I did. How did you know that? Because we recently talked about that. We watched the show Brittany Runs a Marathon. Yeah. That's where we learned. <laughs> since, since we're not runners. <laughs> That's probably why I was attracted to this question. <laughs> All right. But my question is, why is it this specific distance? 26.2 miles, the average you know, you know, that's a marathon. good question, because you'd think, uh, I would have thought, well, 25 miles, 50 yeah, miles, yeah. you know. Why is it 26 miles? I don't know. I have no idea. I do. Okay, Bob. well, what's, what's <laughs> the answer? Because it all started in Greece, right, where everything started. And that is the exact distance between Athens and, wait for it, a city called Marathon. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, and now you know how the event got its name, too. So, it's 26 miles from Athens to Marathon. So a marathon run is 26. Right. <laughs> 26.2. And as a bonus question, Bob, mm-hmm. how long does it take the average runner to run a marathon? I think it's uh, three or four hours, five yeah. hours. Yeah, that's very good. You're in the ballpark. Yeah, it's the average is between four and five hours. And the average... To run a mile is between nine and 11 and a half minutes. Okay. I, I thought that was very interesting. You know, we've been using uh, communication a lot, and I, I found an interesting, uh, there's an article called, uh, Okay, Fine, Let's All Get Back on Facebook, written by uh, Joanna Stern in the Wall Street Journal. I just want to read you one quote. It's kind of funny. Sure. It says, Our new coronavirus reality confronts us with an extreme challenge. Stop our physical selves from being in contact with almost everything and everyone, yet remain connected. <laughs> Coincidentally... That's the world Facebook's been building for us all along. Oh, yeah. So it's ambivalent. You know, people don't like Facebook, but now they're on Facebook. And people are doing video on Facebook. And she described uh, after her mom uh, using the Facebook portal. That's the um, physical piece of hardware. Uh After my mom donning a digital bow tie hat and glasses read my son, the itsy bitsy spider, he cried out again, Grandma. Oh, how cute is that? And she said, I began to tear up. Oh, (laughs) see, it's uh, it's meaningful. So. I have a communication question now. Okay. So you notice how I slid into that. that. So smooth. Segue, awesome. Okay. In the days before the telegraph and the telephone and the internet, how did Napoleon gain a communications advantage over his enemies? I would think he'd have a contingency of slaves he kept sending back forth with information. Napoleon had slaves? I didn't know this. You know, just people. Okay. Soldiers. Soldiers. Okay. Uh, uh, soldiers, and it was like telephone line, and they'd uh, say, "Tell, you know, run a half mile and tell the next person." And okay, you tell good. the next person. It is. It was a relay, and it, it was soldiers. Um, he hit on the idea of use a a semaphore telegraph visual message. So they had flags that I was they signal flags too. And he had them, them as far as the eye could see. He had a network of of visual sighters across the countryside, and he could send a message from Paris to Rome in four hours. Wow. Which was a lot of, you know, we're talking back in the early 1800s. Before I mentioned the relay, I was going to say flags, because you, but uh, I never thought of combining them, which makes perfect sense. It's good for Nappy. Nappy? Nappy Bonaparte. Nappy was your, okay. <laughs> what was his first name again? Bonaparte. No, Bonaparte was his actual last name. Napoleon Napoleon was his first Bonaparte, name. yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Because it was the Bonaparte family. Yeah. They were in our neighborhood. A <laughs> <laughs> little pushy, too. Well, you're Pushy right. little people. <laughs> Come on. He has a thing about that. Okay, that's right. right. He doesn't like being short. That's where we get the Napoleon complex, That's right? exactly right. 
I won't name names, but okay, there are all sorts of fun facts uh, you're reading about now for everybody staying at home and a lot about food like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So uh, according to our local newspaper, Bob, you want to take a venture? Uh, How many different uses there are for corn? (laughs) (laughs) This is from what, the Milwaukee Journal? Uh Uh-huh. How many different uses there are for corn? Uses, yes, yes. So beyond just being food. And on the cob and on your plate and in your teeth. (laughs) Well, yeah. <laughs> it's used as a source of embarrassment. Yeah. If you haven't brushed your teeth. How many uses for corn? This is a weird thing. I like cornmeal, cornbread, yeah. all the different corn yeah. things. Yeah. Just venture. Corn this. flakes, which I mentioned earlier. You so did. there's one. It's a thing with you. I, I don't know. How many? Four thousand. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Somebody is actually cataloged. Well, that's what my question is. Who counted them and why? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who gets up in the morning and says, I think I'll catalog how many uses for corn Oh, are. my God. <laughs> you know, you said something about Napoleon complex. That's a term, right? That's uh-huh. a term meaning somebody who is uh, very overly sensitive about being short, right? Yes. Um, there is a term. The Do you know what the term Semmelweis reflex <laughs> I do not. The no. Semmelweis reflex. No. It's, a, it's interesting that you brought that up because Semmelweis was the physician who originally said doctors should wash their hands. This is back in the 1900s. He'd set up an experiment at a hospital he was in, and, and he had the doctors dip their hands in this lime solution. and the Lime? It was kind of a limey, chlorinated lime solution in a uh-huh. hospital because he was working in a hospital that catered to women who were having babies, and uh-huh. a lot of women got infections. Oh. Okay? But he found out that the midwives didn't have as much infection and as they the doctors. they washed their hands. Too. They, they washed their hands, and also the doctors were going from, they were working with cadavers oh, and everything else. And it's then, intuitive. I know think. it is. But he set up this experiment. They had a mortality rate of 18.3%, and after they washed their hands, the mortality went down to 2%. Gosh. But he went for years. He published books. He was ridiculed by physicians. For years, he was ridiculed as like this this eccentric, thinking <laughs> doctors should wash their hands. But later Good on, Lord. yeah, in the 1880s, when the pioneers of germ theory proved that disease could be transmitted by microscopic particles, he was vindicated. From that point on, if you had a knee-jerk reaction to reject new evidence because it contradicted established norms, you had a Semmelweis reflex. You were rejecting things like the people who rejected Semmelweis. What's his name? Well, Semmelweis or Semmelweis. He was a Venetian doctor in Austria um, in 1825. his name is... Ignaz... I-G-N-A-Z Semmelweis. Yeah, a lot fought, of that going around. Yeah, wow. yeah, you're right. That people are rejecting science in many cases now. Today, yeah. Yeah, and that's what's getting people in trouble. Yeah, getting so the, that's uh, a very relevant uh, I thought it was relevant a, a pertinent thing. It is. I've got a transportation question. Uh, there's a railroad called the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. It's still around it's in various forms now. It's uh, been absorbed into other railroads. But what was it the first to do that of all railroads in the world... What did the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad do? A transportation milestone. It crossed the mountains? No. States? No. Rivers? No. <laughs> I'm running out here. Don't know. Okay, it was the first railroad to provide for both freight and passenger transportation. Ah. Prior to that time, it was all freight. Oh, so 
they're the ones that came up with, hey, we could take people on this thing. Yeah. Get on top of a bunch of logs and take you over to Akron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because um, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, Maryland, started it. He was the richest man in America when he backed the railroad. It was the first railroad in the United States, and it was... They actually produced the first U.S.-built locomotive in 1828, the Tom Thumb. Peter Cooper, who's a 28-year-old inventor, invented it. But it was the first railroad to pull passengers as well as freight. So they started a whole new business. Isn't it funny how yeah. it never occurred to anybody? And then one day someone said, huh, let's put a person on this. Yeah. Besides, the, there's always an engineer, right? Well, yeah, could, right. He brought his wife and an idea was I don't born. Know. <laughs> or his girlfriend. It could have been, yes. <laughs> Leave the, the wife passen- at home. The passenger that wasn't supposed to be yeah, there. Right, yeah, right. You got that right. But they came upon something. <laughs> What do you, you got some other okay. questions? Yeah. Or? Okay, Bob, you know uh, what a commonwealth is. It's mostly former territories of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there are four U.S. states that have the designation of a commonwealth. Name those states, Bob. Okay. All right. Let me say they were eastern states. I think, uh, I think the commonwealth of Virginia is one. Correct. Um, I thought Maryland was one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, not Maryland. Um, were the Carolinas Commonwealths? Nope. Well, I'm not doing too well here. No, no I Pennsylvania. Th- correct. Okay, two, so two Pennsylvania and Virginia. So then... Uh, the one obvious one, the only one I would get is this one. Georgia? No, that's no. not... Okay, what, what, were the, what were the... What do you mean, no? <laughs> How would I know? No. I never react that way when I ask you a question. No, that's so stupid. What? What? What's the answer? Well, the other two? Yeah. All right, I'll give you a hint. A lot of Kennedys like this state. Oh, Massachusetts. (laughs) Okay. From the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I always remember hearing that. And then there's uh, the fourth one that surprised me is Kentucky. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's Massachusetts, Kentucky, Virginia, and Pennsylvania are the only four Commonwealth states in America. Wow. Because I thought Kentucky, you know, Kentucky was one of the first states outside of the 13, first 13 colonies. You wouldn't think that it would be a commonwealth. Yeah, I don't get it. I've got one, another food one, okay? And it's something that happened in an emergency. In 1945, the JERP, J-E-R-P-E, Commission Company of Omaha changed its name and introduced a new line of poultry food using techniques that developed during World War II. What's the name of the company today? Jerp. Tyson is one. That's what you'd think, yeah. But no. No. And uh, I, I don't know then. Swanson. Oh, Swanson. Swanson. They, they began their line of uh, Swanson canned and frozen chicken and uh, turkey using experience they gained during the Second World War. And so all their poultry during that time was shipped to the armed forces. And then they introduced TV dinners in 1954. Oh, okay, 54. I bet you there was a lot of corn in some of those chicken dishes. One, one of the many 4,000 uses Oh, you for had corn. to get your corn in, didn't you? Oh, I'm counting, Bob. I'm counting. You do like corn. I do like corn. <laughs> I like corn, too. Uh, that's it for today for Trivia for The Off-Ramp. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we come back with more fun and interesting information here on The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.